Well, hello again, guys. I'm happy for the chance to talk with you about the chart that you completed as you read the first um, half of the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Um, a couple of notes to begin um, about these first few verses that you read. The Gospel, according to Luke, is the only one of the Synoptic Gospels to begin with a literary prologue. Um, so Luke seems very formal at the start. It's easy to even skip over those verses. There's literary construction and vocabulary within this prologue that's very, um, well, it's used as an imitation of the Hellenistic Greek writers. So Luke, in doing so, is relating his story of about Jesus to contemporaneous Greek and Roman literature. And so in these first few verses of chapter one, um, he's establishing himself as telling a serious story and he acknowledges his debt to earlier eyewitnesses and ministers of the faith. But he claims that his contribution, this gospel, um, to the developing, growing tradition is complete and accurate. And it's told in an orderly manner and it's intended to provide this guy Theophilus which translates to friend of God, Theophilia, a friend of God, um, and any other readers with certainty about the earlier teachings they had received. In yesterday's reading, just 40-ish verses, Luke announces many of the themes that will become prominent in the rest of the gospel. For instance, the centrality of Jerusalem and the temple, the journey motif, moving to and from a place, the universality of salvation, concern for the lowly, the importance of women, uh, Jesus as savior, um, that spirit-guided revelation and prophecy will be key and ultimately the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, which is interesting because his Gentile audience didn't necessarily know many of those Old Testament promises, but Luke knows that it's important that they eventually understand. In yesterday's activities, I hope you could sense Luke's use of parallel scenes. Um, the Greek word is diptychs. Um, the parallel scenes, particularly of the angelic announcements of the birth of John and then the birth of Jesus. Um, and how this parallelism will confirm the ascendancy or the importance of Jesus over John that John is prophet of the Most High, but Jesus is the Son of the Most High, that John is great in the sight of the Lord, um, exactly as it says in verse 15, but that Jesus will be um, great with a capital G because he is God, that John will go before the Lord. Um, he, will, he will be first in ministry and he will be first in death, um, but that Jesus is Lord. <laughs> and that his death will conquer death. Um, so, so many of the themes that we are gonna unpack in Luke are right here in these first 40 verses. <clears throat> so as for things that I hope you wrote on your charts, important notes about Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son, John. <clears throat> Zechariah is uh, identified to us as a priest from the priestly division of Abijah. Um, this is a reference to the eighth of 24 divisions of priests who for a week at a time, twice a year, served in the Jerusalem temple. Um, so he is, um, Luke is establishing the temple as a central location and Elijah as, excuse me, Zechariah as a um, <clears throat> member of the priestly order. 
he and Elizabeth have no children. They're described in verse 7 as um, having no, no child. And we know that childlessness, being barren, was looked upon in that uh, time period in contemporary Judaism as, uh, excuse me, contemporaneous Judaism as a curse or punishment for their sin. Um, but connecting to the bell work for today, really we see the intentional presentation of Elizabeth as a woman in a similar situation to so many of the great mothers of the Old Testament, like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, the mother of Samuel. So Gabriel tells Zechariah, this might have been something you wrote down for Gabriel, do not be afraid. The command, be not afraid, or do not be afraid, or fear not, is all over the Old and New Testament, something like 145 times. The angel Gabriel says it to Zechariah, and then again to Mary at her annunciation, be not afraid, <clears throat> and then to the shepherds on Christmas night. So clearly it's a message that the reader needs to hear. And it's a message that we need to hear, especially today. You and me, be not afraid. They are instructed by Gabriel to name the child John, which means Yahweh has shown favor, an indication of John's um, very special role in salvation history. <clears throat> Traditionally in English, John translates to God is gracious. There's an interesting verse about John the Baptist I would like to make note of, and that's verse 15. He'll neither drink wine nor strong drink. This is to remind us of Samson and Samuel um, consecrated by the Nazarite vow, the priestly Nazarite vow, and set apart for the Lord's service. It seems so random, neither drinking wine nor strong drink, but it's um, reminiscent of Samson and Samuel. Now, Zechariah's becoming mute, being rendered speechless, is the sign given in response to the question in verse 8. Um, now, Mary asks a similar question, how can this be? And unlike Zechariah, who was punished for his doubt, she, in spite of her questioning, is praised and reassured. This was my uh, daily deliverable for you yesterday. And you all, at the end of yesterday's lessons, gave great responses about why she's exalted and he is punished. Let me offer you this. <clears throat> Mary's questioning response is a denial of her sexual relations. Um, she establishes herself as a virgin. Um, and it's used by Luke to lead to the angel's declaration about the Holy Spirit's role in the conception of the child. Um, so she <clears throat> establishes her virginity and the angel speaks to the divinity of this child, the spirit's role in the conception of the baby. So according to Luke, the virginal conception of Jesus takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, and therefore Jesus has a unique relationship to Yahweh. He is the Son of God. Mary isn't so much doubting like Zechariah, but offering a wondering of how this could be a very understandable confusion at the miraculous overcoming of the natural order. She's offering a desire to understand how can this be. In verses 36 to 37, we have a sign given to Mary in confirmation of the angel's announcement, um, and that's the pregnancy of her aged relative Elizabeth. 
It's a sign of just what God can do. If a woman past childbearing age could become pregnant, why, the angel implies, should there be any doubt about Mary's pregnancy? Because nothing will be impossible for God. Uh, Verse we really must remember in these days. The critical words of Mary's ascent, and by ascent I mean her free choice to participate in all this, is, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to thy word. And I really hope you wrote this beautiful verse down on your chart underneath Mary. Let it be done to me according to thy word. A final word that I find absolutely fascinating, and I hope you do too. In Luke 28, The word that the angel Gabriel uses to describe Mary as full of grace, translated um, in our Little Rock Catholic Study Bibles as highly favored, is kekariatomene, and I know I'm butchering that Greek pronunciation. It's not literally full of grace, but its root word is the Greek verb, to give grace, karitu. The word is in the past perfect tense, meaning that the action of giving grace has already occurred, the past perfect tense. This Greek word, kekariatomene, is the root of our doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. We believe she was freed from the stain of original sin at her conception, not Jesus's, her conception, so that years later, she could be the most pure vessel for God to grow his incarnate son. It was not something that was about to happen to her. Remember, past perfect tense. It's not that grace was going to be imparted upon her if she said yes, but something that had already been accomplished. The word was also used as a title. The angel didn't say, Hail Mary, you are Kekariatomene, but rather, Hail Kekariatomene. Therefore, the word is not simply an action, but an identity. She is immaculate. She is without the stain of sin, not because of any saving work she did, but because of the saving work her son would do for her and all of humanity on the cross. So it's one of the many instances where knowing the Greek original, knowing the different verb tenses reveals a depth of theological insight we could otherwise completely miss.